If you have your Bible, turn in the book of Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3. We continue our study there, and as you're turning there, I want to ask you if you remember your last bad restaurant experience. We, I, I do. That's why I'm asking you. I want you to commiserate with me. Uh, several months ago, uh, Taylor and I uh, were going to dinner with uh, some dear friends, uh, two, two other couples, and we had met at one friend's house and all piled into the car together. And because we're not great planners, sometimes somebody asked, well, where should we go? What should, where should we go for dinner? And so we floated out different ideas and tried to narrow it down. And we decided on Mexican food was, uh, was the cuisine of choice, which is a crowd pleaser. Usually can't go wrong with Mexican food. Uh, and so then we started to try to figure out which Mexican restaurant do we go to? Do we go to the one we always go to or should we branch out tonight? It's Friday night. We've got babysitters. You know, we're feeling loose and free as parents. And so we decide, uh, based on my wife Taylor's recommendation, she gave me permission to tell this story, by the way, based on my wife Taylor's recommendation uh, to go to this new uh, kind of upscale, cool Mexican restaurant. Not the, you know, the normal Mexican restaurant where the rice and beans come out and they're all together. You're not really sure what's going on on the plate. Not that one, like the, the next level Mexican restaurant. Because she had seen on social media or somewhere people talking about this restaurant, how cool it was. And the pictures were perfectly, you know, framed and colored and it looked fancy and nice. And so we're just like, well, let's give it a shot. You know, it's this new and different and so we were worried, though, it's Friday night, you know, we might not be able to get a table at such a cool restaurant. And so we called uh, ahead to say, hey, do you have room for, for six tonight? Is there any way we could get a table in sometime tonight? And we should have been alarmed when the lady on the phone said, well, yeah, of course. It's like, oh, okay. Doesn't seem difficult to get a table there. That's great. So we'll go. Well, we go and we walk into the restaurant and the outside does look like the pictures showed us. We get to the inside and while it kind of looks like what the pictures showed us, it didn't feel like what the picture showed us. You know what I mean? You ever sit down and the, the table just doesn't feel like it's been cleaned in a few days, right? There's several layers of queso covering the, covering the, the table. There's nobody in the restaurant. There's like three other fake couples in the restaurant. We're like, this is, this is going to be a problem. We decided to tough it out. Wait for the chips and salsa. It's one of the best things about Mexican restaurants. You get chips and salsa that comes out. And you can tell a lot about a Mexican restaurant by the chips and salsa, by the way. And uh, I knew immediately we were in trouble when I dipped the chip into the salsa, and I couldn't tell if I was eating salsa or tomato sauce. I was just, you know, what's going on here? And the rest of the meal continued like that, and it wasn't a great experience. We had fun because of who we were with, but it wasn't what we expected. It didn't meet our expectations. What we had heard and seen online about this Mexican restaurant didn't match the environment that we experienced. And our text today is talking about how we as a church can avoid that same problem. You see, everybody that goes to church, everyone that comes to a faith fellowship has expectations, whether they know it or not, whether they articulate them or not. Everybody, even today, all of you walked in here with expectations for church this morning. Sometimes churches don't live up to those expectations. The, the product that's delivered, the, the, the environment that's created doesn't match the message that the church proclaims publicly. But sometimes churches meet and even exceed those expectations. And what we've got in our text this morning is a blueprint for how to meet and exceed the expectations so that what we say with our mouths matches the environment that we create as a church. And so we're going to look 
at that environment that we're to create, Colossians chapter 3, beginning of verse 12, and then see if there's something we can't learn from it this morning. So read with me, Colossians 3, beginning of verse 12, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this. He says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, here we go, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. Meeting and exceeding expectations, what we're doing here. And above these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Verse 15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us as a church a roadmap. You showed us who we should be and how we should live and what it means to be followers of you living this Christian life together. And as we work through this passage this morning, I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us individually, but you would also speak to us corporately as a church, as a body of Christ, as a faith family, so that we might catch a vision for who you're calling us to be. And then, Lord, would you help us to live that out by the power of the gospel? So would you speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Paul is speaking to the church at Colossae when he gives these instructions. You can see it in the way he talks and the way he addresses. It's a lot of one another language. He talks about what you should do with one another in a body, he calls. And so the, the context is extraordinarily clear that Paul is talking to a church about how a church should live. And if you remember last week, we talked about some things that the Apostle Paul says we need to put off. And now Paul's talking about some things that we need to put on in the place of the things that we put off last week. And he's talking specifically in the context of the church. And he's saying, this is how you are to relate to one another in a church. He's telling them who they should be as a church. And he's telling us who we should be as a church. Today is September the 17th. My first sermon here was June the 18th. And so we're right at three months since the Lord called me to here and about a dozen or more sermons here. And so we're still getting our feet wet a little bit. And I'm asked a lot of times, about my strategy for reaching people as a church, my strategy for growing the church. My, what, what ministries are we going to do and what programs will we start and what, what are we going to do? I get asked that a lot. Those are good questions and our answers to those questions, we're starting to implement some of that even now. But I gotta tell you, I am way more concerned as your pastor about who we're going to be than who, what we're going to do. Strategy is important. Strategy matters. But if, if, if the strategy we have, the approach, if the message that we're proclaiming doesn't match who we are as a people, what's the point of the strategy? Famous business consultant Peter Drucker is famous for saying, culture eats strategy for breakfast. In other words, who we are is way more important than what we do. What do we mean by culture? Another business guru, guru Seth Godin, he says this, I like this definition of culture when we use that word culture. He says, people like us do things like this. People like us do things like this. That's a great definition 
for culture. And if that is the definition we're going to use, you can, you can understand it as this. Culture is a definition, a reflection of behavior, and behavior is a reflection of our identity. And so you say that the opposite way. Who we are as individuals drives what we do as a group, and what we do as a group communicates who we are as a group. And every grouping of people has some kind of culture. And the Apostle Paul this morning is defining for us what ours should be at Fort Caroline Baptist Church and for all Christians in the kingdom. And so here's the main idea today is that gospel people create gospel culture. Gospel people create gospel culture. We're gonna, that's, that's the point. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling us, and that's what we're going to see throughout this text. And if culture means people like us do things like this, then we can quickly see how this passage is structured. The Apostle Paul tells us who we are. Verse 12 says we're God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So that's who we are. And then what do people like that do? He's going to tell us. And we're going to look at three things that we must do to create the culture God wants us to have. And the first is this is that love must guide our relationships. Love must guide our relationships. The first thing we see is that love's the overarching theme of the relationships that we are to have in the church. Look back with me at verses 12, 13, and 14. He says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against Another forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. Verse 14, above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So the Apostle Paul lists out some attributes, some character traits that need to mark our relationships within the church. The first thing he tells us, we have to have compassionate hearts. Our hearts towards one another in this faith family should be marked by compassion. Every person who walks into our gathering, every one of you who walked in this morning carries with them a story, don't they? Carries a story that involves pain and hurt and sin and struggle and fear and anger and on and on and on. Without exception, the human experience, to be a human, is to go through difficulty. Jesus, when he was talking about hard times, he didn't say if hard times come. He said when right? Difficulty is coming for everybody. And so every person that walks in here is carrying something. And as people who believe and proclaim the gospel, our first instinct towards people in our fellowship shouldn't be one of judgment or distrust or anything else. Our first instinct towards people in this faith fellowship should be one of compassion. It should be one of compassion. (coughs) Excuse me. In the Gospels, we read over and over and over again that Jesus had compassion on the crowds. Jesus had compassion on the people. And he had compassion on us when he saves us by grace through faith. And so our response to that should be to have compassion for one another. (coughs) Our church culture should reflect Christ's character, and so we too must have compassionate hearts. The next thing he asked for is kindness. He said kindness should mark our relationships here. There's nothing worse than mean church people. Amen? Amen. Nothing worse. And yet you find them everywhere you go. Mean church people. People who are just angry. People who can't be bothered to smile at you when you come in the door. Should be an oxymoron. Mean church people. What in the world is it? It doesn't mean anything. The Bible says that God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. So in order to become a part of the family of God, it's it's God's kindness that draws you to it. 
And so what should we do if we're going to reflect God's kindness? We should be kind to other people. There should be no such thing as unkind, mean church people. Kindness should permeate our gatherings here. Humility, he says, is what's next. We should be defined by humility, and this makes sense. If we think about the gospel story and the gospel message, the fact that the gospel says there's no way any of us could make it to heaven on our own. In fact, our sin, every person here is sin, and shortcomings and failures are so bad that Jesus had to go to the cross on your behalf. What room is there in that gospel for pride? None. We should be marked by humility. The Bible says our good works are like filthy rags to God. God doesn't look at us and go, well done, man. You guys are awesome. You're killing it. No. He looks and goes, whew, you tried. You messed it up, but you tried. Here's Jesus. Right? That's, that's what we believe as Christians. This leads logically to the next thing Paul says, which is meekness, which is just a way we carry ourselves. Meekness is a, a humble in our attitude or a humility in our posture. Humble people don't beat their chest. They don't show off. They're not braggadocious. Jesus was none of those things, and if our culture is going to reflect Christ, neither should we be those things. He goes on to say we need to be patient with one another. We need to be patient with one another. This means giving people time and space to change and grow. You ever been close to someone in church, maybe someone in your small group, and they're not changing quite as fast as you wish they would, right? They got some areas in their life that they need to grow in, and they're not growing as fast as you think they should. The Bible says be patient with those people. Because let me tell you what, God's being patient with you. How many of us are growing at the speed that we wish we were? How many of us are changing and becoming Christ-like as fast as we want to? No, God is patient with us, and so we ought to be patient with one another. And finally, he says, we should be forgiving people. We should be forgiving people. One of the most absurd ideas on earth is that the people of God would be unwilling to forgive one another. We become the people of God in the first place by being forgiven of our sins. Let me tell you something, church family. People in the church are going to hurt you. People in the church are going to wrong you. They are going to let you down. They are going to disappoint you. There's going to be someone in your small group that rubs you the wrong way, I promise. That's a feature, not a bug, of small groups. Let me tell you something else. Your pastors are going to let you down. I'm going to let you down. I guarantee you. That's the only promise I can make you about the future of this church. I will let you down. Guarantee. So those are foregone conclusions. The only thing that's left to decide is what we'll do when people in the church let us down. Will we hold a grudge against them and, and, and keep our distance from them and, and sit and scowl about it? Or will we forgive like Christ forgave us and move forward in unity, which is what this passage tells us is the product of this love. We forgive because Jesus forgave us. He even went so far as to say that if we won't forgive one another, he's not going to forgive us. That's how seriously Jesus takes this. We're going to be a church marked by forgiveness. All of these things, they, they all fall under one big umbrella, which we could just call love. That's why we said our relationships must be guided by love. If you love someone, you'll be compassionate, you'll be kind, you'll be humble, you'll be meek towards them, you'll be patient with them, you'll be forgiving of them. As followers of Jesus, love must guide our relationships. And so the logical question then for us this morning is, are there relationships in our church that are not marked by love that we need to sort out? 
Is there someone in our faith family that you've been judgmental of when you should have been compassionate towards? The good news is there's opportunity to correct that. Is there someone in our faith family who needs your kindness today? Is there someone in our church who you've been impatient with? Maybe God's bringing them to mind even in this very moment. Maybe God's calling you to be more long-suffering with them today. Is there someone in here that you need to forgive? I would encourage you to offer that forgiveness to them today. Before the day is over, extend that forgiveness towards them. You can feel culture, can't you, right? When we're talking about culture, go back to my Mexican restaurant. You could feel when we walked into that Mexican restaurant, this place is dirty, right? And you can feel when you walk into a nice restaurant, you're like, oh, man, this is fancy. I didn't wear nice enough clothes, right? You can feel that. And the same is true of a church. You can feel the gospel culture of a church. It's hard to articulate. It's hard to parse out. The Apostle Paul's done it here for us, but it's hard to put your finger on. But it has a feel, doesn't it? And I want to encourage us as church that we should cultivate a church that's marked by love, a culture of love within our faith family. When guests come into this place, they should be able to feel that we love one another and that we love them and that we're glad that they're here. I want to encourage you, maybe a practical way that you can do that is is when you come to church, instead of going straight to your favorite seats, everybody has their favorite seat, right? Mine's right here, okay? Almost everybody today, as I look around the room, is in them. You're in your favorite seats. Well done. Instead of going straight to your favorite seats, maybe scan the room for a minute. Look around and see if someone you don't recognize. And instead of going straight to your seat to make sure nobody sits in it, why don't you give a shot to going up and introducing yourself to them? Saying, hey, my name is so-and-so, and I'm glad you're here. Is this your first time? No, it's your 37th time. Oh, well, I sit on this side of the room, so I've never talked to you on this side of the room. <laughs> They'll forgive you. They'll understand Let's be a welcoming church, a church where you can feel the love that we have for one another because gospel people create gospel culture and gospel culture has relationships that are marked by love. The second marker of a gospel culture is that the word guides our speech. The word guides our speech in a church that's marked by gospel culture. The quickest way to know that you're in a foreign country is the language barrier, isn't it? Anybody ever traveled outside of the country to a place where they don't speak English? Well, you never feel like you're out of place more when you don't speak the language. I don't know what language you took in high school. I took French because I wanted to date pretty sophisticated girls. It worked. Um, Just once, but it worked. That's all I needed. But every culture has a language, doesn't it? It has a a, a way it communicates. And verse 16 of our text says that our language should be the word as a church. Verse 16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He says the word of Christ should dwell in our faith family richly. Scholars like to debate what what is he talking about when he says the words of Christ or the word of Christ. Some people think it's the actual red letter, the words he spoke. Some people have said, no, it's talking about the totality of uh, Jesus' teaching and and the teaching about him. It doesn't really matter because John 1 tells us the word became flesh. And so this is what it's talking about for us as New Covenant believers. The word should be our language as a church. It should be what we speak here. As gospel people, we should speak pray, teach, sing the word of God. It is all 
we've got. Listen to how he describes what it should look like in our church. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. What does it mean to dwell in a place? It means you live there. It means it's always there. It means nine times out of ten, you can find the word there. It's at home in this place. And this church should be a place where the word is just always present. It always exists. You can always find it. And he says it shouldn't just dwell there, but it should dwell there richly. That word just means in abundance. There should be plenty of it. Not just a verse, and then we're going to go on talking about what we're going to talk about. But we're going to get into the Word and mine the depths and the riches of God's Word together. Look what else he says. He says that we should teach and admonish one another with the Word. Teach and admonish one another. In other words, the Word is the language that all of us should speak to each other, not just whoever's speaking from the front should speak to the group. This is not a me-to-you thing. This is a one-to-another thing. The word should be our language, and this is why it's so important that we build our church and our ministries around the word. It should permeate everything we do. And that's why when we teach and preach here, it's going to come from the Bible. I can assure you that this is, this is going to be my commitment. Every time I step in here to preach the Bible, I don't have anything cool to say, guys. I don't have anything good to say. I'm not that smart. I don't have any unique insights into the world, but the Word does. The the Word has something to speak to us, and the Bible says that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The power is here. And if we as a church are going to accomplish our mission, we've got to find our source of power in here. The Word changes us. That's why I'm committed to preaching expositionally, which just means making the main point of the text the main point of the sermon. That's why I'm committed to making our primary diet working through entire books of the Bible like we're doing here in Colossians, because the Word is where the power is at. Not just our teaching should be about the Bible, but our groups and our small group gatherings should be centered on the Bible as well. A small group without Scripture is just a social club, and you can find that at the YMCA. Guys, we are a church. We should be centered on the Word. Our small groups should have fun. Absolutely. Uh, they, should, they should include food. I think that's very important. That's even biblical. That's Acts 2.42 if you need chapter and verse. But they should also include scripture. Let's gather around the words of God, study them, apply them to our lives. Jesus told the church, he gave them a mission. He said, go therefore and make disciples. And that's the mission of the church. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's step one, which means reach them for the gospel. And then what's step two? He says, teaching them to obey all that, that I've commanded you. What does it mean to make disciples? It means to teach people God's word. That's what our small groups are designed to do. That's what this service is designed to do. When we worship, he says we're supposed to sing to one another. And the, and the, the ESV, which is what we're, the translation we're using, it doesn't bring this out very well, but some other translations do. It's actually saying here that we don't teach and also sing, but the, the, the text is actually saying we should teach by singing. Our singing is actually a method for teaching ourselves God's word. And so when we worship, we are teaching one another the truths of Scripture in our worship. That's why one of Craig's primary duties as our worship pastor here is to ensure that the songs that we sing are scriptural in nature and in their theme. You can even see it in what we sang this morning, right? We opened with who the Son sets free is free indeed. That's John 8, 36. Next, we sang that sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. It's Isaiah 1, 18. The song we sang just before I came up, 
I don't have a Bible verse for it because it's like, it's basically the Apostles' Creed and the whole, all of the Gospels. That's the verse. Like, it's, we just rehearsed all of the Gospels. Word themed singing because we're teaching ourselves through song. That's why it's important that we sing to one another. Some of you guys are not like, I'm not musically inclined. That's too bad. The Bible says you got to sing. Usually on Mondays, we'll have a conversation as a staff about how Sunday went. We'll bring up stuff, what happened, what went good, what went bad, that kind of stuff. And for me, when I evaluate how did worship go, my question isn't how good did, play, did Craig play guitar, or how good did Casey or Tori sing, or, that's not what I'm, what I'm after. It's not how good is Josh or Andrew or Lori, anybody, not, none of that is what I'm after. That matters, it's important, they work hard at their craft, they're very talented. But I'll tell you how I know it was a good worship day. It's when I can hear you guys singing. When I hear you as a congregation singing together, rehearsing the truths of the scripture to one another, we're not just singing to God. This passage and the one in Ephesians that mirrors it make it very clear. We're not just singing to God. It's not what worship is. Worship is not only speaking to God. It's speaking to God, but also speaking to one another. And we're encouraging ourselves with these truths of scripture, and it helps us keep going in our faith. And so we've got to sing these truths of Scripture. And if the Word of Christ is going to dwell richly in our church, it needs to flow even in our conversation, I would say. I want to encourage you, church, to make sure you're speaking the words of God in our conversations here. Not just in our formal prayers or teachings or music, but even as you talk to one another. And I'm not talking about being weird, okay? Don't be weird, right? <laughs> I'm not talking about someone walks in and you say, Hello, brother, blessed be the name of the Lord and our God and Father, Jesus Christ. Okay, don't do that. But the words of God can flow out of you in a very natural manner when they're hidden in your heart and the word is a priority to you and you're living your life uh, out of the outflow of Scripture. The words of God will have a natural way of just coming out of you. And someone might say, hey, man, hey, I know you've been going through a tough time. How's that going? And someone who speaks the word of God will say, you know what, it's been difficult, but I know that my God will never leave me nor forsake me. And even just that thing, I don't need chapter and verse, but just letting the words of God flow out of you helps us create this culture in our church that is marked by God's word. Gospel people create gospel culture, and a gospel culture has a gospel language. Lastly, third and final point, thankfulness should guide our hearts. As a church, if we want to have a gospel culture here, thankfulness has to guide our hearts. Three times in this short passage, the Apostle Paul says, be thankful. He says in verse 15, he just says it just like that, and be thankful. In verse 16, he says that we should sing, how? With thankfulness to God in our hearts. Verse 17 says, whatever we do in word or deed, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, how? Giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus. We oftentimes think of thankfulness as a mood or an attitude or an emotion. But the fact that the Apostle Paul has to command us to be thankful three times in three verses means it's a choice. Thankfulness is a decision that we have to make. And I got to tell you, as I studied this passage this week, I was blown away by how much we have to be thankful for. We here in this room, if you are a Christian in this room today, you should be the most thankful person on the planet. You think about what we've been given we were destined to spend eternity paying the price for our sins, separated from God in hell. But God in his kindness and his love towards us and his mercy 
He sent his son Jesus on our behalf to stand in our place and take the punishment that we deserve on himself. And then he says, you can have this forgiveness. You can have freedom from sin. You can have an eternal life. You can have all of this if you'll just believe. I don't need you to do. I don't need you to achieve. I don't need you to accomplish. I don't need you to perform. I don't need you to be good enough. I just need you to believe and trust me. And if you'll do that, your guilt, gone. Shame, taken away. Eternity, secured. All by grace, through faith. If that doesn't make you thankful, church, what are we doing? We should be the most thankful people on earth because we've been given the greatest gift on earth. And I'm convinced that a lack of gratitude is directly connected to a lack of perspective. We fail to be thankful when we fail to remember what we've been given. There's a scene in Luke's gospel that illustrates this point beautifully. Jesus is dining with some Pharisees. Pharisees are kind of the legalistic, um, super holy, but not really people of Jesus' day. And he's having a meal with them. And this lady, she finds out Jesus is there and she walks in to this dinner party. And the Bible says this lady was a sinner, which is just a label that means she was not a fine, upstanding citizen. And she walks in and approaches Jesus and falls down at Jesus' feet and begins weeping at Jesus' feet and washing his feet with her hair. And then she anoints his feet with oil that she had brought in. And the Pharisees are absolutely flabbergasted that he would allow this to happen. They couldn't believe it. And the text even says they were, they were kind of grumbling in their hearts about that he would let this woman do this. And they even said if, if Jesus knew who this woman was, he wouldn't let her anywhere near him. Jesus responds to their objections with this parable. He tells a story of two people who are in debt. One person owes about $100,000. The other person owes $10,000. And the, the, the banker, he forgives the debts for both men. He says, your $10,000 is forgiven. Your $100,000 is forgiven. You don't have to pay it back. And he asks the Pharisees, he says, which one do you think was more grateful? Which one do you think loved more? The answer is obvious. The one who was forgiven the larger debt has more gratitude and love than the one who was forgiven the smaller debt. And Jesus says this, which I think is true for us, and it's a reminder that I needed this week, and maybe you need it too. He says that he who is forgiven much loves much. Church, when we are not thankful, when our hearts are not warmed, when we are turned inward in our perspective, I'm convinced it's because we've forgotten how much we've been forgiven. We've, been forgotten, we've forgotten the magnitude of the gospel. The Pharisees in this story, they didn't think they had anything to be forgiven for, and so they didn't have a, a whole lot of gratitude in their heart. This woman, she knew the weight and the depth of her sin, and therefore she knew the immense magnitude of the gift that she'd been given in forgiveness. And if we're struggling with thankfulness, church family, the path backwards is to go to where it begins. Go back to the cross. Go to the good news of the gospel. Remember who you were before Jesus. Remember what your destiny was before Jesus. Remember how hopeless your situation was before Jesus. And then remember how great a God we serve who would wipe that away. And then we would be thankful. Thankfulness should mark our church culture. A changed heart 
is a thankful heart. So we've got to remember how much we've been changed. Gospel people create gospel culture, and gospel culture begins with thankfulness. So the question for us this morning is what type of church will we be? Who will we be? My prayer, this, this verses 12 through 17, this is a prayer for the church. This is a prayer that I have been praying for our church and will continue to pray for our church is that we would be a church that does everything in the name of Jesus because he gave everything for us. I'm praying that we would be a church that loves one another and is patient with one another and supports one another and encourages one another because that's what Jesus does for us. I'm praying that we'll be a church that's built on the truth of Scripture and speaks the language of God because we know that the Scripture is the only thing with the power to change us. And I'm praying that we'd be a church filled with joy and gratitude because we're overwhelmed by the grace of God in Christ. It's important that we embrace this culture in our church because our church has a message. And our culture of our church is how we confirm that that message is true. The culture of this world needs our message. It needs what we have to say about Jesus to be true. The culture that we live in in this world, outside of this church, is a culture that talks a whole lot about love, but in reality is actively trying to destroy us. The culture of this world is one that talks a whole lot about truth, but actually doesn't know how to define truth. The culture of this world is one that is never, ever thankful, never, ever satisfied with what it has, and so it's always trying to get more out of life. Pastor Ray Ortland has a book on gospel culture in churches, and he says this. He says, the only answer to one culture is another culture. Not just a concept, but a counterculture. And a church should offer the world such a counterculture, a living embodiment of the gospel. Church, we proclaim a message, the message that people can be set free from the penalty of sin by what Jesus has done on the cross for them. And if we want people to believe that message, we've got to live that message in here. Amen? That's our task as a church. Gospel people create gospel culture, so let's make sure we're a church that's filled with love for one another, that speaks the word to one another, and that operates from a place of gratitude for the gospel.